Welcome to our podcast from the Ark Insider. I'm Karen Allen, and I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. Tara O'Connor, my co-presenter, the managing director of Ark, a pan-African risk consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from London. The Ark Insider aims to offer some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas among those who live, work and breathe African affairs. We'll touch on some of the events that have been in the news, as well as ongoing topics of interest. Tara, good to hear your voice. You're back in the UK. Yes, back in London after 15 months away, and it seems into a COVID storm where there are something like 100,000 new cases predicted over the winter. But then on a happier note, a reminder of this lockdown project, which seems to have gathered a life of its own. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I have to say, as a Londoner, I've been watching closely the restrictions and South Africa, where I'm based, is now off the red list. So I think you'll be seeing a lot of people uh, heading your way over the Christmas break. Well, we've got a fascinating guest on the podcast today, Tara, haven't we, as we seek to reflect on environmental issues. Shantha Blumen, the Director of Mobility for Africa, will be talking to us about the electric vehicle industry in Africa and the struggles faced by mobility startups trying to serve the market for what the industry calls the last mile. But before we speak to Shantha, let's take a look at some of the stories that have made it into the news since our last podcast. I do want to connect you to a fast developing story out of Sudan where a military takeover is in progress. Just within the past few hours, the head of the armed forces dissolved the joint military-civilian government, declared a state of emergency and announced elections for 2023. Well, 56 military veterans are expected to appear in court in connection with Thursday night's hostage drama, which took place at St. George's Hotel in Centurion. Members of the Liberation Struggle... Let's cross over the borders to Uganda, where police are investigating a late Saturday explosion in which one person was killed and seven others injured at a restaurant in Kampala. Police say the explosion went off from a package that was left at the restaurant by three people. President Yoweri Museveni, in a statement, has called the explosion a terrorist attack and vowed to bring the perpetrators to book. It says that there are about six people who've been killed since the beginning of local government election campaigning and uh, the visit was aimed at calming tensions ahead of the local government elections. Picking up on one of those stories, South Africa, and it's witnessed a number of political killings ahead of local government elections on November the 1st. Normally, as you know, Tara, not much attention is paid to these internationally, but following the violence or attempted insurrection, as it was described by some commentators back in July, the conduct and outcome of these elections is being watched particularly closely for further signs of more fissures within the governing African National Congress, not to mention concerns about violence on the streets here. Yes, and we'll be watching the results closely too, as it's likely that uh, the ANC will be in the uncomfortable position for the first time of having to form coalitions with other parties at municipal level. And can I briefly mention Ethiopia? We've seen a serious deterioration in relations, in international relations, and particularly between Ethiopia and the US. And you'll see that the conflict in northern, the northern region of Tigray has attracted widespread condemnation from the UN Security Council and the US itself. 
And then we had the astonishing CNN investigation recently, which alleged that Ethiopia's national carrier, Ethiopian Airlines, Africa's you know, most significant airline, transported weapons to Eritrea back in 2020, right at the start of the conflict. It's quite an allegation, and it will really put at odds, probably, um, the relationship that Ethiopian Airlines has with US aircraft manufacturing giant Boeing. And it'll be interesting to see how this soured relationship with the US affects the wider role of the US in the Horn of Africa and what, you know, how it will affect Joe Biden's administration's aims. Yeah, I mean, that story about uh, the Ethiopian airlines, I mean, that's extraordinary. You can imagine the lawyers were crawling all over that before being broadcast. But it is really quite an allegation that a commercial airline would be yes. theoretically transporting. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's extraordinary. And also, Ethiopia's got an air force. Why would you bother using a commercial airline? But anyway... That's a different. That's a different matter, but as you say, the U.S. has got huge interest, hasn't it, in the Horn of Africa? It's got a massive maritime fleet in the Gulf of Aden, as well as a major military base in Djibouti. It's about four and a half thousand troops that are based there, and it's from there that it conducts counterterrorism operations in the region. Ethiopia is a really, really, really important strategic partner, as well as being a business partner for the United States. So the Tigrayan story and Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's handling of the conflict and its fallout will definitely be one to watch. So pivoting, and pivoting, of course, is the big word yeah. that we're all using, the buzzword. Let's look at business. And a big event since our last podcast, Tara, is the massive fines that the UK, the US and Swiss regulators have slapped on the Swiss banking giant Credit Suisse Group. They've been imposed for the bank's involvement in what has become known as Mozambique's tuna bond scandal, so-called because it was supposed to finance a fishing fleet, but instead became a channel for corruption and fraud. Now, of the 1.3 billion US dollars in loans, Credit Suisse paid out a staggering 50 million US dollars in bribes and kickbacks to Mozambican government officials and bank employees. But now the bank is facing fines of a total of 500 million US dollars. That's quite a substantial sum, isn't it, Tara? It is a, a substantial fine. And here we are actually seeing an example of international reg regulators working together in mm. concert mm. Uh, in imposing these fines, and particularly for Credit Suisse's involvement in what was basically a $2 billion loan scandal. And in total, about $200 million of that $2 billion were paid out in bribes to government officials and a lot of the uh, investment bankers took a hefty chunk too. Mm. So it was an example of something that we were actually seeing in other countries recently, where, especially in South Africa and in Zimbabwe, where the economic instruments of state are actually diverted uh, to use and to facilitate corruption. Yeah. And then, interestingly, the US has prosecuted three of the investment bankers that were involved in paying the bribes. But for those who accepted the bribes, there has been very little movement and very little movement in Mozambique in particular on, on prosecuting them. Yeah. You know, the scandal took, you know, took place under the existing Frelimo government, or even though it was under a different president, you know, Armando Gabuza. But both, you know, both the US and Mozambique have sought extradition of the former finance minister, but very little else has happened. For the people of Mozambique, there is some good news. 
Part of the regulator's decision is that Credit Suisse will have to write off some $200 million worth of debt that otherwise would have fallen on the shoulders of Mozambican taxpayers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on the other side of the continent, but sticking with Lucifer countries, Angola is getting some good press as President Zhao Alorenzo continues his drive to reform Angola's economy with some success. Just a few years ago, Tara, we really didn't think we would be speaking of Angola in such optimistic terms, did we? Well, Rio Tinto, the Anglo-Australian mining giant, has entered into a joint venture with Angola's state-owned mining company, Endiama, to develop a diamond mining concession. Now, it's quite important for Angola, isn't it, Tara? But I guess the age-old question is whether the revenues will help ordinary people in Angola, in a similar way to how it works in Botswana, may I say? Well, I think over the long term, it will obviously help uh, help ordinary people. Um, but what, but particularly because what it first shows is that investor confidence in Angola and the Angolan government is up. And this marks the return to Angola of the first global major mining company mm. for 30 years I mean, most major mining majors, as they are called, have actually avoided Angola for nearly 30 years, shunned the country because of the stranglehold that the Dos Santos family, their military barons and the close allies of the Dos Santos family um, have uh, held on the economy. And in fact, the president, the former president's daughter, Isabel Dos Santos, mm. formerly controlled a huge chunk of the dime of the country's diamond sales and exports, and in fact held licenses to this particular mine. But on the on the other side, it's also quite a good news story for Rio Tinto, which has been in the wars recently for its behaviour in Australia, because it marks a significant expansion of its diamond producing ambitions. And so it's you know it's a good news story all round. Really interesting. Tara, thank you. You're listening to The Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. As we record this, we have a little over a week to go until the COP26 Climate Change Conference, which is being hosted by the Scottish city of Glasgow. And as you know, climate issues are very much a feature on my radar, Karen. So we really want to focus on the issue of energy-saving transport in this podcast and in particular on rural mobility. Yeah, absolutely. Well, our guest today is Shantha Blumen, who is the director of the social enterprise Mobility for Africa. Shantha, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Oh, well, it's lovely to have you here in our studio in South Africa. You can get rather lonely being here on my own. We've got Tara joining us from London. Hello, Shantha. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. Let's get straight to it, Shantha. Your startup is called Mobility for Africa and it brands itself on offering smart mobility solutions for rural women and particularly rural women in Africa. And at the moment, you're operating out of Zimbabwe. Now, you've developed a battery-run vehicle called a Humber, which we'll talk a little more about in a minute or so. But briefly, how on earth does an Australian, because we've spotted your accent, an Australian-born national who spent decades in the aid business, become a social entrepreneur? Well, it's been quite a journey. Um, yeah, I, I, I spent 25 years working in development, many of them in the continent, many of them visiting rural parts of, of the continent, going out bush. And about four years ago, I sort of had a crisis mm -hmm. of faith. What, what I, I 
not that there isn't a lot of good work done in the development sector, but I was exhausted by the the talk. Mm. We're very good at diagnosing the problem, but we're not so good at developing practical, sustainable solutions. So I jumped ship, gave up the nice monthly paycheck and decided that I wanted to to really do something that solved this problem. Mm -hmm. And, And having, you know, spent 20 years starting in Africa, living in a rural village in Zambia and having had to carry water myself, just frustrated that yeah. that we still, I think we romanticise the picture of a rural woman carrying a heavy load um, with the baby on the back mm. and thinking it's acceptable. And it just seems, it, it was just like, why haven't we done anything about this? And I had spent the last three years of my career with UNICEF in China, mm. so I had seen the amazing impact that low-cost, affordable mobility could play for poverty alleviation and thought, why can't we bring that to rural Africa? This really is the China-Africa story, isn't it? Well, you know, there's obviously the sandwicher, which is the what we started with and now we're adapting and improving is a three-wheel tricycle Mm -hmm. that had originally been pedal and then had been petrol and in the last six years had become electric. So my logic was fairly simple, and I admit I was a bit naive. Why couldn't we bring this electric tricycle Mm -hmm. to rural communities, um, taking advantage of the huge investment going on in off-grid energy and renewable energy, and solve this problem? And, And the idea when we talk about shared mobility solutions is not just thinking about the individual having to own one, Mm -hmm. but thinking about how a community as a whole can can benefit and 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 then have that sort of dynamic impact because there's more business there's more trade there's more people going to the clinic there's a catalytic effect if you introduce mobility it sounds absolutely fascinating particularly you've got a fabulous battery that uh, that you've designed yourself and is actually designed for rural roads and stuff tell us a little bit more about the amber yeah, so Hamba means go in Endebeli and Zulu. Our intent was not just to import something and hope it would work. We wanted to start and build as we we we, we mm. grew and learn from the practical experience off the ground. So, you know, it wasn't developing the technology in a in a lab and then hoping it would work, but let's start with something that's been proven in rural China and see what needs to be done to make it adaptable for, for rural Africa. Essentially, it's a three-wheel low speed. It's not a motorbike. It it goes only 20 to 25 kilometres. But the beauty of starting with this type of tricycle is that it can carry three to 400 kg. Which makes it different from a tuk-tuk that we see, right, which is normally for passengers. Well, so the tuk-tuk focuses more on urban Mm -hmm. and obviously been very popular in Southeast Asia. And the difference is that it's not a motorbike. So a motorbike has two problems. One is it really only can carry a maximum of 100 kilos. Um, And bicycles and motorbikes, while, you know, serve an important purpose, are not great for rural women or for women in general because they're not designed for heavy loads, which Mm -hmm. most women need to carry. They're not um, women still wear skirts or Mm -hmm. predominantly don't know how to ride a bike mm-hmm. and they're afraid of straddling. Mm-hmm. So so when you can imagine if you're on a bad road and you're straddling with a baby on your back and trying to carry a, you know, 50 kg bag of milli meal, it's not doesn't doesn't go too well. Mm-hmm. So the the what we knew from all of our community focus group discussions was women really had a lot of hesitancy even with bikes. 
And so um, the beauty of the, the Humber itself is that they can sit, put their feet on the ground. It has a, a throttle. Mm -hmm. It has one gear for low and one gear for high. It's very simple to teach a woman how to drive. I mean, obviously, w when we started, you know, we, we've developed a five-day driving course because obviously for women, this is the first time they've ever used motorised yeah. transport. Yeah. So that's been a journey. And then, Tara, just in terms of the technology, what, what we discovered was that, I mean, Electric vehicles, as, as you know, anyone who follows Tesla's evolution is all about the battery. And what we realised was there's, I didn't know much about batteries, but obviously there's a huge range and what would work in rural China or India where there's plenty of cheap power um, and distances aren't that far and a farmer can come home and has power at their, at their home mm. is a completely different proposition when you go to rural parts of the continent. Um, you know, electricity coverage in Zim is in rural areas less than, you know, around 20%. Uh, if, you know, and that's most probably on a good day. Um, so essentially we needed to tackle having um, a battery that, one, was was could go further on longer distances, two, could really handle heavy, rough roads because what we've got to remember is, you know, while there's been investments in roads in the continent, most Africans live, you know, at least two to five kilometres from a main highway yeah. and many more further kilometres away. And most of those roads are dirt roads, you know. This is the last mile idea. This is a last mile idea. So we're talking about really off, off the main route. Mm -hmm. And so what we've done is we've worked with a, um, a Chinese technology partner um, and Richard's been amazing. He worked at Tesla, actually. So we, we've taken all of our learnings from trial and error, two years of, you know, breakdowns and things going wrong and said, what do we do and how do we make this safe? Because mm -hmm. obviously the lithium-ion, you know, we don't want batteries blowing up. And how do we make it durable for, for these bumping and the vibrations? Yeah. And the great exciting thing, which I think is a real, you know, links back to COP, is that you know, there's been a big focus on energy access. So do people have access to energy? But the next big question is, can they store that energy and what's it used for? And the benefit of bringing renewable energy generation and battery storage together means that then you open and unlock mobile energy. So the batteries we're testing at the moment will, will be, you know, take the Humber 100 kilometres but they potentially can also be used to plug and play for other productive use assets. You know, so when you're not using the battery, you basically could use it to charge a whole manner of other things. Exactly. And we've also designed it so it has a second life. So it's going to go many cycles, which, you know, we don't want to import junk and, and create another source of waste in the continent. We have enough of that. So we're going to be responsible for the shelf life. So the battery itself should last 400,000 kilometres in a Humber but then it'll still have life that it can be used for storage. We've talked a bit about the, you know, that last mile, but what does that actually mean in, uh, in practical and commercial terms? Tara, I think for many of us that have spent time in rural communities, um, you know, you, you understand when people talk about women dying on the way to a health clinic when they're trying to deliver a baby because it's 10 kilometres and there's no transport or when a farmer's crop rots in the field because there's no transport to get it to the local market. And it's it's been a huge, it's not like a secret 
I I think that's what I find a little bit frustrating, that it's a well-known problem, but it's sort of a neglected problem. People just think it's too hard. So the social and economic consequences are huge. Um, I mean, we all know, we all take for granted that we have the freedom that mobility brings. And I think we've got to now apply that to what it can potentially do in a rural community where women don't have to spend three hours a day fetching water and collecting firewood and they don't have to, you know, worry and take their kid to the clinic when it's sick and spend an extra day when they could be in their fields going back and forth to the clinic. Um, the, the Rural communities have been so isolated and I just think that this, it's not going to solve all the problems, but you can, what we've seen in Wedza is incredible dynamism, you know, people being able to double their income, grow more things, get to the health clinic, use their time more effectively. And translating that into a business model, Shantha, how uh, you've got a very interesting business model, I gather. Look, it's been it's been hard because I obviously entered this with, um, you know, the idealism of wanting to solve this this problem and and didn't come from the world of finance and money. So it's been a journey to learn about how do we make this a sustainable and profitable business because I didn't want to be a charity. I don't I came from that world of having to beg and hope that your donor would give you another check and that was not what I wanted to do. And I I actually also have a sense of urgency that we've got to solve this problem. We're, we've got we've got a climate crisis, we've got to move. We know that the impact is going to be felt you know, and 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 the burden carried by rural Africa, even though it didn't create the emissions. So this sense of urgency that we need to create a replicable, scalable model quickly, which is going to require a considerable investment. So I've been learning. I've been learning how do we make this financially viable. And my thinking and our thinking in the model is that we don't need to think just about the individual. Um, If we look at the aggregate spend on transport in rural communities, it's at least 20 to 30% of household income. There is demand and people will spend money if it leads to them making more money. So, you know, already in Zimbabwe, you would be shocked. You know, people spend a dollar pretty much getting a US dollar, getting anywhere. Um, And it's just the cost of living. You know, you just have to suck it up and, you know, that becomes what you do. So what we're trying to do is build a shared model, and this is also, you know, in Europe we talk about shared, you know, the the the, the Uber, the the shared car ownership. So what we're trying to do is apply some of that thinking in a rural community. What does that mean when you're talking about shared ownership? So we have a fleet. So this is this is what we would love. You know, we're testing now is a fleet of say a hundred tricycles, and then you have some that could be leased to purchase to 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 farmers, who pay over time. Um, and in, in the case of Chipinge, where we're setting up now, we've got they've, they're at, the farmers are dairy farmers and they'll get a subsidy mm-hmm. from the EU who wants to help them um, generate more milk income. We'll then set up a ta- transport and taxi service. So then everyone in the community, go-go who needs to go to the clinic, someone needs to go to the market, they can call. We have a dispatch system, um, send a message, an Uber a Humba mm-hmm. can come, pick them up, take them and they pay. Um, and that is very viable. That definitely pays for itself. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you, everyone has to fill up the tank, so to speak. They have to pay for a new battery when they need a battery. So they don't own the battery, but they pay 
for a new battery over time. And because we've got the technology now where we've got this long-lasting battery, the battery should pay for itself, you know, over a couple of times over the duration of its lifespan. And then finally, we're also talking to local government because we know that health services, agricultural extension workers, all these local governments basically have a problem. They don't deliver social services because civil servants don't have transport. Mm. You know, police don't go and investigate a cattle raid or domestic violence crime because they don't have transport. So we've been testing in WEDS are giving police, the community health workers, and what we've seen is the obvious. They're doing their job. They're actually going to investigate a case. They're taking COVID vaccines out to the community. They're building trust with their community because they're actually doing what they're intended to do. So we're hoping we can make a case sort of this public-private blended partnership. I, these words get thrown around, as you know, but to me there's there's a lot of money going into rural agricultural development, small-scale farmers. There's a lot of money going to rural social services. We've still got 70% of the continent rural. So now we just got to get the mobility built in to how we design that. This is a killer question, though, because I know you do want to scale up. You're doing it in Zimbabwe. Why Zimbabwe? Because that surely must have been sort of designing a rod for your own back, given the difficult sort of investment climate there. Or, or are we wrong? No, rod for my own back. That's <laughs> no, it's been tough. Um, three years ago when I started, I obviously thought Zimbabwe would, things would have changed and the isolation that the country's suffered for and the last And you know the country years. well. You're not a, a naive I, do-gooder. You've spent no, a lot of time in Zimbabwe. I, I have spent a lot of time in Zim over the last 20 years and... Look, I know that, that I have a network there, which was important. I have some great team members and I knew that there's a, there's a lot of enormous talent that's wasted, you know, young people that can are literate, that are educated, that are eager to learn. So that has been really rewarding. And what's, I think, been the hardest thing is that Zim is off everyone's map. You know, the startup money in the continent, which is great, it's growing, but it's focused in, you know, in East Africa, in Nigeria, in Ghana. You know, there's a few little concentrated bubbles where mm. all the sort of impact investors feel safe and they all go there and, you know, they're there. And to get them to think outside of that geography is very, very difficult. And then admittedly, Zim has, you know, a macroeconomic instability. But ironically, um, you know, I also think that if we can convince people to come to Zim, you know, there are real benefits. Um, the the agricultural productivity is incredible. And even since land reform, there are 200,000 small-scale farmers now, you know, and the, the, the sort of outgrowing schemes with you know, it started off as tobacco, but that's expanding. There's, you know, avocados now, there's chilies, there's a whole lot of new investment going on in outgrower schemes with small-scale farmers. And they're very productive. So, I mean, it's just trying to, how do we get out of the narrative to convince people to be brave enough and take risks? And you've got plans as well, you know, for next. I mean, where next? I mean, obviously, probably funding would be easier if you, if, out of Zimbabwe, and I gather you're going to my former home country, Zambia, next. Yeah, well, so that's been the big thing, Tara. I mean, we were, we've been we we hedging our bets, and it's always been let's learn from Zim, and then let's take this across the continent, and let's start in Southern Africa. Let's start with Zambia. Um, I mean, Zambia is you know 
have exciting new dawn, so we want to be part of that. Um, there's a lot of um, investment going into off-grid energy, so I think adding the mobility dimension makes a lot of sense. Um, Malawi as well. Um, I mean, Malawi's a little bit more, I think, challenging in some ways because it's it's still developing its agricultural sector, but I still think there's huge potential. We've also been talking to partners in Tanzania Um so the potential is there and it's what what's what's really interesting is I, I have two conversations. I have one conversation with people outside the continent who think I'm slightly crazy. And then when I talk to Africans, especially African women, they get it instantly. Mm-hmm. And I've had emails from, you know, people from Cameroon and Benin and southern Nigeria who write and all want me to come and let's let can we get can we can we get you to come and let's work together on figuring this out. So you know, I think if we can create a replicable model, then not only can we help attract other players into the e-mobility space, and then secondly, um, you know, we as Mobility for Africa, we we want we want to think big. And it's interesting because, you know, you've not been sort of presented as this sort of idealistic Australian woman who spent a lot of time living in Africa and China. I mean, you've got some of the big companies that have supported you, at least on the development side? I think Toyo's been involved. So we're very lucky. We, From the very beginning, we one of our first um, funders with Grant was Toyota Mobility Foundation. So, you know, one of the biggest car companies in the world who have a foundation that's very interested in rural mobility, was new to Africa and looking for their African strategy. And what I think back on this three years of their, you know, weekly calls because we're very they're very hands-on what's been really encouraging is they never really worried about where we were so they they didn't think twice um the head of the foundation came to Zimbabwe before he even invested and said I want to see what's happening so they're very they've been very uh supportive now what we need to do is take the grant money and prove that it can be a a, a profitable investment and that's and that's the challenge I think with a lot of startups you know because people sort of peg you and say oh you've been dependent on grant money so can you go can you now become viable without grants and you know our challenge is that we're capex heavy we're hardware we need we need money to you know physical tricycles and batteries not just an app so it's a it's it's difficult to get the, the the sums of working capital you need to then increase your revenue to prove that this can actually you know really be scalable and profitable yeah. but one of the things that that you talk about sometimes is the um this idea of the the startup ecosystem and, and if it's not a world that you know Tara and I aren't particularly familiar with um, this idea that there are concentrated pools of safe bets. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about Kenya. We talk about Uganda. You know, we were talking about sort of the safe border scheme, didn't we, uh, in the past, Tara? Yes. You know, uh, these are yeah. the motorbikes that have a, the uberization yes. of the motorbikes. And it is really interesting, isn't it, that sort of East Africa is seen as a bit of a, a safe haven in the way that sort of Southern Africa isn't really. And ironically, you know, Nigeria very much the the centre of fintech, mm, uh, tech yep. development for financial services. Yep. So Southern Africa is set to become the mobility hub. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. In the e-mobility space, when I started, there was literally, you know, a, there was a few of us and most of them were East African and most of them are busy doing a great job, you know, creating the investment case to convert uh, body bodies mm-hmm. 
Yes, the motorbikes. The motorbike. And you've got the business case and it's the urban transport. And, I mean, just the numbers of motorbikes now in, in Nairobi mm-hmm. has, you know, tripled over the last five years. It's a, it's, a, it's a greater cause of carbon emissions than four vehicle four-wheel vehicles. So the logic's there. Helps with the traffic, though, I have Helps to say. Helps with the traffic. So let them all go green, let them go electric. But to me, the other thing is, does it have to be an either-or? Mm. And, you know, so do we have to wait till we've figured out urban and then start on rural? And my argument is, no, we can't wait. We don't have time. And everyone knows that Africa's urbanising at a rapidly scary rate. So if we don't start making rural areas a little bit more, you know, seductive for people to stay. Mm. Mm, that's a good point. But, the, but, but going back to startup, I think... I think it's great. So when I, you know, in the last 10 years, a lot of, you know, players are now coming in and a lot of them are backed by foundations and, you know, um, bilateral and multilateral donors, which is great because we need to get the creativity on entrepreneurship happening. I think, though, the danger is that sometimes because it's a mix of public and private money, they create so many loopholes to jump through, you know, milestones and and conditions Mm -hmm. And and my cynicism new to business is it's a short-term approach. Yeah. So they're still obsessed with uh, an Excel sheet. And, okay, Excel sheets are important. I shouldn't say that. But, but, the, but the problem is if you guys know, having been in Africa, that, you know, you've also got to double-check your assumptions. Yes. Do you know what I mean? And, and it's very hard to validate informal economy data. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to validate rural. And then you go to women and you might as well forget it. You know, so so to me, my frustration is even just finding half a million dollars to sort of expand our pilots has been a real struggle. And yet, if you were a European multinational, would you go into a new market without doing a lot of R&D and testing? While I'm happy this ecosystem is building, my frustration is, come on, you know, be a bit more risk prone. You know, we have to test things out. We have to experiment. And ultimately, you also have the data, which I think is very interesting. I mean, we we have lots of tech-focused conversations, don't we, Tara? But just the amount of, you know, by doing the research, just the amount of data that you acquire, you know, that can be monetized. I know that's not your priority, but, you know, Mm. further down the line, we know so little about these economies and the the potential value can be extracted from the uh, rural informal sector. Um, Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I have this grand vision where we have this formula a modular formula yeah. for fleet management of 100 or 50 tricycles or 30 tricycles with a charging station completely run on off-grid energy with a local, you know, locally trained mechanics repairs. So if, if the woman breaks down, she knows where she can get mm-hmm. spare parts. And you support. So we could have 10 or 15 sites. By the end of next year, we want to have 15 sites in Zim at least and a presence in Zambia and Malawi. And then we perfect the formula so we can partner with rural development partners, we can partner with corporations doing outsourcing, we can partner with, you know, the potential is huge and we just come in and help set up that ecosystem, get it operational and then have a centralised support team. Uh, one final question, I guess it's a personal question, but, but what, what drives you, if it, no pun intended? But, you know, you've come from the world of, 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 of aid. You've already said that you got frustrated about the the slow pace of getting things done and the lots of talking and not so much doing. But, you know, there must be days when you just think, what on earth am I doing? But what, what keeps you going? Yeah, there's been, been a lot of those days recently. But I think I don't want to give up. 
I've invested too much time. So on a personal level now, it's like, darn it, I am not failing. You know, I'm not letting someone else succeed where I put in all this hard work. But secondly, I mean, it is, I truly believe that this can be catalytic. And if you come and you speak to our women and you see what it's like for Gogo Nelly, she's 68. She's our oldest pilot participant. She grows bread in an underground oven and then she drives the Humber around and sells the bread. You just go, okay, this in itself, an empowered woman, and we're seeing the gender shift. You know, people will tell you, you talk about lecturing women about, you know, being empowered, but here you're doing it. They can drive a motor, uh, you know, a motorised transport. They can sell more, earn more, so their husbands leave them alone, to be frank with you. They have more time and energy. One of our focus groups, I dare I say this on the radio, said that the women have more time to make love to their husbands because they're not Seems so like tired. a good plan. <laughs> and, and so there you go. You, 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 the men have to ask for a lift in Wedzer if they want to take transport. So you're, you, you're not, I, that's what keeps me going. I, there, there, are, there, are, there are so many women in this continent that need that liberty and freedom and I'm like, we've got it. we're not stopping until we get to reach more of them. Shantha Blumen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating stuff, Shantha. Thank you very much for coming on and telling us about it. Thank you both for having me. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. If you're interested, Tara's team at ARC produces monthly country reports on 22 African markets. You can subscribe to these at info at africariskconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.